Behold our God. What a great theme. This morning we want to think together about God's response to the sins of his people. Guess what our text is? Anybody? I didn't want to confuse you, so I decided to stay with Exodus 32. You say, why? Why so many messages from Exodus 32? Why spend so much time in the chapter? The answer, quite simply, is because God has so much to teach us in this, this one chapter where we see so many defining moments for the life of His people, Israel. Let's just take a moment to review where we've been in our thinking thus far. The events described in Exodus 32 occurred at the foot of Mount Sinai, only days after God met with Israel in a most extraordinary display of His glory. We read in Exodus 19:16, then the thunder and the lightning, and there was a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. And then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. The mount was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. And the smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. In the aftermath of this encounter with a holy and awesome God, the Lord initiated a season of waiting a break in the people's journey to the land of promise, a staycation of sorts, during which Moses was called upon to come up the mountain and meet with God while the people stayed in the plains below and waited for Moses' return. But this season of relative inactivity was anything but wasted time. Whether the people understood it or not, they were for nearly one full year to remain there in God's classroom, being taught one after another vital lessons about the nature of their God, His demands on His children, the rebellious nature of their own hearts, and the price of pursuing their own selfish wants rather than God's purpose for them as a people. Now, thus far in our studies, we've traced them through their foolish efforts to exchange the glory of God for that of an idol fashioned in the likeness of a, a bull, a, a calf, as our text tells us. We've observed how their idolatry and immoral practices made a laughingstock, both of them as a people and of their God, a laughingstock before the unbelievers of their age. And we've gone to school on Aaron's classic example of failed leadership. But today, today I want us to turn our attention to yet another lesson that God wishes to teach His children during their staycation at Sinai. Today I want us to observe and hopefully to learn from God's response to the sins of His people, most especially His anger against sin. In our text for today, Exodus 32, 7 through 10, we read as follows. Then the Lord God said to Moses, go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, and they've made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them 
and that I may destroy them. The parallel passage in Deuteronomy 9, 7 through 8 reads as follows. Remember this, that you are a rebellious people and never forget how you aroused the anger of the Lord your God in the wilderness. From the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, you have been rebellious against the Lord. At Horeb, that is Sinai, you aroused the Lord's anger so that He was angry enough to destroy you. Based on the words of our text, the first thing I want us to do, and the first point on your outline, is to rediscover the anger of God as revealed in Holy Scripture. I dare to refer to this message as a rediscovery for the simple reason that the church in our generation has in large part dismissed the biblical teaching of God's anger against sin. If ever there was a passage in the Word of God that begged for a serious consideration of God's anger against sin, it's the chapter right here before us. In Exodus 32, in its parallel passage, Deuteronomy 9, there are no less than 12 specific references to God's anger. Nor are we only confronted by the word anger. The evidence and extent of God's anger against sin is everywhere observable in this passage. In Exodus 32:10, His anger burned against them enough to destroy them. In verse 27 of this chapter, he instructs the Levites to put the instigators of this great sin to death, 3,000 of them in all. In verse 33, he announces to Moses that those who are guilty of this sin will have their names blotted out of the book of life. In verse 35, he struck the people with a plague. And in chapter 33, verse 3, I will send an angel before you, but I will not go with you further on this journey to the land of promise. In Deuteronomy 9, 8, the parallel passage again, he says, you aroused God's anger so that he was angry enough to destroy you. Verse 14, let me alone so that I may destroy them. Verse 18, Moses interceded for them 40 days and nights because they had aroused God's anger. Clearly, God's own record of his anger against the sin of his people leads us to the conclusion that This is no trivial matter. Nor is this the only passage that speaks openly and forcefully of God's anger against sin. A.W. Pink, in his book, The Attributes of God, says, A study of the concordance will show that there are more references in Scripture to the anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are to His love and tenderness. In passage after passage, God unapologetically reveals His anger against sin, and never once are the consequences of His anger pictured as trivial or unworthy of our attention. Now, for the sake of time this morning, I want to give you just one more example of a passage where God speaks concerning His anger against sin. From Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 and following, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance on His foes and vents His wrath against His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power, and will not leave the guilty unpunished. The mountains quake before Him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at His presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand His indignation? Who can endure His fierce anger? Somebody's thinking already, I'm sure, if you 
aren't you should be. Yeah, but that's all Old Testament. We may be tempted to think of the God of the Old Testament and that of the New are two different gods. What we read earlier in our text this morning in Hebrews 12, 28 and 29, that we should be thankful and worship God acceptably with reverence and all because our God is a consuming fire. Or we could turn to Revelation 6, 16 in the New Testament. Then the leaders of the nations and everyone else will call upon the mountains to fall upon them, fall upon us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? And yet in spite of the many and troubling passages addressing the theme of God's anger in both Hebrew and Greek scriptures, we remain largely uninformed about scripture's teaching on this attribute of God. In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer writes, one of the most striking things about the Bible is the vigor with which both Testaments emphasize the reality and terror of God's wrath. The modern habit throughout the Christian church is to play this subject down. Those who still believe in the wrath of God, and not all do, say little about it. Perhaps they don't even think much about it. To an age that has unashamedly sold itself to the gods of greed, pride, sex, and self-will, The church mumbles on about God's kindness, but says virtually nothing about His judgment. It hasn't always been this way. Earlier generations of American Christians were schooled regularly by their pastors and their teachers and their parents on the subject of God's anger against sin. We've all heard of Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. We've heard our parents tell of growing up in churches where messages on hellfire and brimstone were preached. If you are 60 or 70 or 80 years of age, you may have actually sat through such sermons in your childhood. I remember how as a child growing up in uh, northeastern Ohio, our family would pile into the car on a warm summer evening and drive 40 miles west to a little camp meeting where we would sit on hard wooden benches and listen to a traveling evangelist describe in detail God's anger and eternal judgment against those who sassed their parents and in later years grew up to smoke and drink and went to movies. And then we would drive back home and go to bed and lie awake half the night staring at the bedroom ceiling, wondering who was going to get us first, the boogeyman or God. It was a terrible way to be introduced to the doctrine of God's anger against sin. But at least we grew up knowing that the God in heaven was a God who not only loved sinners, but also hated sin and would, whether in this life or the next, judge those who persisted in it. In contrast to my experience growing up in the church, today many a young person grows up in a Christian home, has a perfect attendance in their church youth group, graduates from a Christian college, knows that God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life, 
but does not know that our God is a holy God who hates sin, has an abiding anger against it, and cannot and will not overlook it. It may surprise you to hear me say it, but in spite of the methods by which I first learned of God's wrath against sin, I am very thankful that I learned this truth early in my life, and I testify to you this morning that the knowledge of God's utter hatred of sin has served me well over the years. This all brings us to our second main point for this morning, which is defining the anger of God. Admittedly, there is no definition as such of God's anger against sin to be found in our text for today, nor in any other single text of Scripture for that matter. But taken together, the many Scriptures that speak of His anger combine to give us a clear and succinct definition. The anger of God is the necessary response of His holiness to outbreaking sin. And when it culminates in action, judgment, it is often referred to as His wrath. Once again, it's J.I. Packer who adds to our understanding of God's anger by pointing out that two things are always true of it. First, it is always applied in such a way as to bring justice. Second, it is always something which men choose for themselves. He explains, he says, before hell is an experience inflicted by God, it is a state for which man himself opts by retreating from the light which God shines in his heart to lead him to himself. In his book, a book that many of you might be familiar with, The Race, written by John White, White adds some helpful words of explanation. He says, God is holy. Sin is horrible. God's burning anger against sin has nothing in common with the tantrums of heathen deities. It is a settled, deadly, holy rage against a vile and terrible ill. And if we choose to embrace that ill, we will step into the rage of God. It is not that He wants to harm us. He longs to utter tenderness and to fill us with His love. But He has sworn to scorch the deadly horror. And if we choose to stay with it, He will scorch us too. He could not do less and remain God, for He understands how deadly it is. Maybe the closest we ever get to understanding the anger of God against sin is when we are personally front row and center for the perpetration of some great abuse or injustice. Perhaps you have been present in a grocery store somewhere or maybe in the home of a friend when an innocent child was beaten for something that they had not done. And everything in you cried out for that child in that moment. Maybe you've been present at the account of a young woman who told of being sold into human slavery. Perhaps the teasing and taunting of an emotionally traumatized young person or a handicapped man or woman has troubled you at some time in your life. Or the unfair treatment of one of your own children. Worse yet, perhaps you've been present when the God you love was dishonored, mocked, 
laughed at. Everything inside us, Christian, in those moments cries out, doesn't it? Everything inside of us says something's got to be done. Somebody's got to stop this. Maybe you even took it upon yourself to try to stop that. You felt compelled to step into the situation to bring a semblance of right to a situation out of control. I so often think of the words of Scripture, righteous lot was vexed. Have you ever been vexed? Has your heart ever been torn by evil in our world? It's what we call righteous indignation. And so, too, the anger of God is always righteous and has as its intention the righting of a terrible and a hideous wrong. This brings us to a third major consideration of God's anger, the revelation of God's wrath. The revelation of God's wrath. Packer, who gives us a framework for this discussion of anger, says that God's anger is revealed in three particular ways. It is revealed on every man's conscience. It is revealed by means of present-day tokens of his wrath, and it will fully be revealed at the judgment seat. First, it's revealed in every person's conscience. Writing to the church in Rome in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul states, for the wrath of God is, you ever notice that? It's in the present tense. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven right now against all ungodliness and wickedness. Moreover, Paul tells us creation itself declares what may be known about the Creator, including His righteousness. They know His righteous decree, he writes, that those who sin deserve death. Therefore, writes Paul, even the heathen are without excuse, since their conscience bears witness that God's judgment against sin is sure. Second, God's anger against sin and His wrath is, is taken or uh, His wrath to come are revealed by means of present-day tokens of His wrath. That is to say that as we observe systematic, repeated sin in the world around us, we may on occasion be able to discern a hardening of men's hearts or a seeming withdrawal of God's Spirit or a giving over of men to the consequences of their sins we may observe what the Apostle Paul referred to as God giving men up to their own vile affections to a depraved mind. Or again, we may on occasion observe God sending natural disasters in the aftermath of some great iniquity. In our text for today, there are many, in fact numerous, tokens of God's anger against His wayward children. The striking down of 3,000 who had been leaders in the sin against God. The decision not to go with them further on their journey to the promised land due to their hardened hearts. The pronouncement of a plague. It's clear that these are all revelations. They are tokens of God's anger against the sin of Israel. And why? How is that clear? Because God's Word tells us this is what they were tokens of His anger. But while we observe about us almost daily in our own day what appear to be tokens of God's anger being displayed against the sins of our contemporaries, I think we are wise to avoid drawing one-for-one -one correlations. 
Now, it may seem obvious to us that consequence A is the direct token of God's anger against sin A. We lack in our day the revealed Word of God to affirm that this is, in fact, the case. Nonetheless, we can't escape the observation that sin does, in fact, have its consequences, not only on the day of judgment, a day to come, but right here and right now. Third, the revelation of God's anger against sin will be clear to all at the judgment seat. Reading from Revelation 20, 11, we read, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And you know what's in those books, the deeds of men, and they are judged according to their deeds. So then the bottom line with regards to God's anger against sin is that no matter how we may seek to avoid this topic during our days on earth, there is no escaping it. It's written on our conscience. There are numerous tokens of it all around us, and the Word of God assures us of His full and complete revelation on the day when He returns to judge the earth and all in it. That being the case, Christian pastors and teachers and parents must not ignore instruction in the matter of God's anger against sin when teaching our children, our youth, our generation. To do so would be not only foolish but dangerous for those who have been entrusted to our care. This brings us to a fourth point in our outline for today, teaching God's anger against sin to the next generation. I realize that this point is entirely applicational, and it has no direct link to our text for today. But if I'm correct in my belief that we are raising a generation of young men and women who have had little instruction in God's anger against sin and the importance of this doctrine, to their relationship with God and their eternal destiny, then we have every reason to take a few minutes this morning to consider how this doctrine might be reintroduced to the generation following our own. Here are a few of my own suggestions, and I confess to you they are just that, suggestions. To begin with, don't scare your children with a version of God that makes him the boogeyman, or in our generation, a bad cop. Do take the topics of sin, the devil, coming judgment seriously. Teach your children that these are not jokes, as the world constantly suggests they are, but weighty matters that have to do with our eternal destiny. When reading the Scriptures, never avoid the many passages that speak of God's anger against sin or His coming justice just because they're hard to explain. By the way, you're blessed to be part of a congregation where your pastor preaches the whole counsel of God's Word. And that is a great support and encouragement for you parents, teachers, as you yourselves seek to be whole in your teaching of God's Word. 
Teach your children, teach the youngsters that sin not only angers God, but that it has consequences. If not in this world, then the next. I feel we're raising a generation that believes consequences are only for other people's kids, not them. That if you're smart enough, you don't have to pay the consequences. Or if you know the right people, you don't have to pay the right consequences. Or if mom and dad are of a nature to bail you out, you don't have to pay the consequences. During my years as youth pastor, I received a call late one evening from a group of troubled parents. They were the parents of a number of young people in our youth group. It seems that their boys had gotten into some trouble, knocking over mailboxes, and now these young men were sitting in cells at the local police station. And not wanting to blemish their own public image in the community, they wondered if I would go to the police station and bail them out. I thought about it for a moment, just a moment, and then I suggested that this would be a good time to begin teaching their sons that bad behavior isn't cute and that it has consequences. In fact, I went so far as to suggest that they might let their boys sit in those cells overnight and go get them tomorrow morning. I don't need to tell you this was not one of my more popular decisions. <laughs> but I still think it was one of my better ones. Just one more suggestion. When God convicts you, mom and dad, when God convicts you of sin in your own life, deal with it decisively. Confess your own struggles and failures to your children. Let them see how you deal with sin. You don't have to go into detail. But your example of taking sin in your own life seriously will set a redemptive pattern for your children for their entire lives. Now I want to return to the text for one final observation. Point five on our outline. Atonement. God's deliverance from His wrath. Thank God for five points instead of four, huh? In verses 27 through 29 of Exodus 32, we learn how God's anger at His people's sin and the creation of an idol was displayed on this occasion. 3,000 of the offenders were struck down, put to death in a single day. The following day, Moses addressed the people. He said to them, you have committed a great sin, but now... I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Fearing that God's anger against His people due to their sin will result in yet further death, Moses hopes to intercede on their behalf. And next Sunday we're going to look at some length at Moses' intercession for the people of God. But how would he do this? How would he intercede for the people of God? What possible solution can one find in the face of God's rightful anger against our sin? Moses knows that there is only one hope for the people of God, and that is atonement, a covering over of their sins resulting in the sparing of their lives. 
Now, I think it would be wrong to gather from Moses' words that he understood the full implication of atonement in God's plan for addressing the sins of His people, or that He had in mind the events of Calvary out there in the future where God's own Son would shed His blood to not only cover our sins, but also to pay the debt for our sins and to open a way to restored fellowship with Father God. But clearly, Moses knew the core meaning of the word, and he understood that what was necessary to deal with the sins of God's people And to satisfy his anger was an atonement, a covering over of their sins. So what did he do? Verse 31, he went back up the mountain to meet with God once again. Verse 32, he pleaded with God to forgive his people their sins. And he offers his own life in the place of his people's. He offers his own life as an atonement of sorts, if you will, a, a covering for the sins of Israel. But it's not to be. Why? Because Moses' life, his blood, if you will, cannot atone for the sins of others. Moses himself is a sinful man. How then can he atone for the sins of others? Nor could the blood of the 3,000 Israelites already slain for their sins atone for the sins of their brothers and sisters. For they had died for their sins. How then could they atone for others? What Moses was not privileged to see that that day was that God himself would provide the necessary atonement. That he would one day send to earth his perfect, sinless, spotless son to die in our place and thus provide not only forgiveness but also restored fellowship with Father God. He would become what the New Testament refers to as a propitiation, one who removes the enmity, the anger between parties. He would remove the anger of God against the sins of His children, opening the way to eternal fellowship with God. It was midnight on a Saturday evening, maybe a little bit later than midnight. The phone rang. Now, when the phone rings after midnight on Saturday evening, pastors think one thing. Somebody died. They assume that most folks in their congregation would not be calling them at that hour, knowing what their day ahead involves. So, when the phone rang, I groaned. Sherry said, I'll get it, and I knew she would, and I knew that if possible, she would keep me from having to answer what what was on the other end of the line or the issues that came up. But she came back in a moment with the phone in her hand, and she said, I think you're going to want to take this one. I took the phone and learned quickly it was my daughter-in-law, Nancy, who was back in Columbus, Ohio. She and our son had gone back to Ohio and were visiting with my mom and dad. I had warned, told my son, remember now, Nancy has not professed faith in Christ. And when dad meets her, he will be gracious and he will have a wonderful conversation for her with five minutes, after which he will say, by the way, Nancy, where does Jesus Christ fit into your life? And that moment had come. 
And Nancy had reported that the idea of God and Jesus only scared her. She had grown up in a church where there was much focus on sin. She knew she was a sinner. She had often gone to confession. She had often done penance. But she'd never felt any freedom from God's anger against her sin. That night, my dad simply expressed to her, explained to her the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How a God in heaven loved us so much. Though he hated sin, he loved us so much. He wrapped his son in flesh, sent him to earth to die in our place. Not only for our forgiveness of sins, but to remove the enmity between us that kept us from eternal fellowship with Father God. She bowed there in the family room. Invited Jesus to come into her life to forgive her of her sins, to be her savior. And praised him that he was removing the great fear, the anger that she'd felt against her sin. And she said to me, oh, Dad, I feel forgiven for the first time in my life. A little bit later this morning in second hour, we've got some folks that are going to come here, share their testimony of faith in Jesus Christ, and be baptized to affirm that they have come to that same realization that Jesus died for the forgiveness of sins and he died to open the gates to fellowship with God. I'm going to take you back to Hebrews 12 to finish this morning. I want to just invite you to bow your heads with me as we come to a close in this service. Share with you a few words. Remind you who we are, where we are in this redemption story. The writer of Hebrews says, but you, you have not come to Mount Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. You've come to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, yes, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, but to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we in turn, will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? And then closing the chapter. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Father God, that you are holy and that you hate sin, we avow this morning. We thank you so much that your answer to that was Jesus Christ who came into the world to remove, remove the anger, the enmity between us, that we might come into your presence and live in sweet fellowship with you in this life and for eternity. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Let me just say this word. If you're here this morning, you've never walked into that truth. You've never stepped into it. God waits for you. 
He longs for you to come and be in peace, at peace with him in sweet fellowship for all eternity.